Chapter 22 of A History of Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Andrea. A History of Astronomy by Walter W. Bryant. Chapter 22 The Interior Planets. Modern advances in planetary observations are confined to comparatively few channels, and the most attractive of these, in the case at any rate of the larger planets, has been the rotation. Schroeder worked for 34 years at Lilienthal before the catastrophe of 1813, when French troops pillaged and destroyed the place and ruined the observatory, many of Schroeder's manuscripts perishing in the conflagration of the government offices. Schroeder was chief magistrate of the district. During this time, he observed the surfaces of the planets, as well as of the moon, with a care and perseverance never before devoted to them. He inferred the existence of a fairly dense atmosphere on Mercury from the relative faintness of the terminator, the boundary of the illuminated portion of the planet, and also from an appearance like a bright halo round the disk when seen in transit across that of the sun giving a shaded rim to the dark disk. This appearance has been seen by some observers and absolutely denied by others, so that it is generally considered to be an optical phenomenon. Photometric observations of the partial phases have tended to show that light is reflected similarly and to exactly the same proportion from the surface of Mercury and from that of the Moon, from which we may conclude that Mercury has no appreciable atmosphere. Schroeder noted an apparent blunting of one horn of the crescent of Mercury, which he assumed to be caused by a mountain. From repeated observations of the times of similar appearances, he inferred a rotation period of rather more than 24 hours. A similar, though slightly shorter, period was deduced from observations of some rather uncertain markings. Several observers, including Trouvelot and Denning, noted features similar to those described by Schroeder. But the next astronomer to devote much time to the subject was Schiaparelli at Milan. By working in daylight, he considerably increased the time during which the planet could be continuously watched and also was able to observe it under much better conditions high up in the sky. The final conclusion, after a long series of observations, was that Mercury has reached the stage of development as a planet that the Moon has as a satellite and turns on its axis in the same time in which it revolves around the Sun, about 88 days. So that as the Moon, except for libration, always turns the same face to the Earth, so Mercury always turns the same face to the Sun, except that owing to the eccentricity of the orbit, Mercury's librations are much greater than those of the Moon so that only about three-eighths of its surface is never exposed to the sun. Schiaparelli also observed markings somewhat in the nature of color contrasts, whose only occasional visibility led him to assume an atmosphere. But Lowell, in the clear air of Arizona, has since verified Schiaparelli's conclusions as to the rotation, but carries the analogy with the moon still further by pronouncing Mercury an airless dead planet with a surface cracked and cooling untold ages ago. 
Although we have begun this chapter with Mercury as the planet nearest the Sun, we must not forget the possibility that this may not really be the case. The anomalous motion of the perihelion of Mercury has been a stumbling block to the universal satisfactoriness of the law of gravitation, and one suggestion, worked out by Le Verrier on analogous lines to the analysis by which he had predicted Neptune, was that there was a planet nearer the Sun than Mercury, whose action would account for the anomaly. Six months before the announcement of this hypothetical planet to the Academy of Sciences, a provincial French physician named Le Carbot had at last succeeded, after years of patient watching, in seeing a round object slowly traversing the sun's disk. Hoping to see it again, he said nothing until after the publication of Le Verrier's result. But then, in spite of snubbing and severe cross-examination from Le Verrier, who hurried down to see him as soon as he heard of the supposed discovery, he succeeded in convincing the great man of the accuracy of his observation, and an orbit was approximately computed for the alleged new planet to which the name Vulcan was assigned. It has never been seen since, though similar appearances were collected and investigated and transits predicted. One such appearance in 1876 was proved to be an ordinary sunspot without penumbra, and the next announcement was at the eclipse of 1878, when, as already noted, two American professors, Watson and Swift, at different stations, declared they saw a planetary object near the eclipse sun, in fact, two such objects. Analysis proved that none of these fitted the calculated orbit of Vulcan, and that, so far as the observations went, they did not refer to the same two objects, unless these were two not very bright stars in Cancer. Those two stars, it is now generally assumed, they actually were, and it is also assumed that excitement rendered the identification doubtful by making the observations unusually bad for such qualified observers, each famous for astronomical discoveries. At no subsequent eclipse has any such object been announced, though much time has been devoted to the search for it by means of charts showing every star in the neighborhood of the sun, which could possibly be visible in the darkest eclipse. The planet next after Mercury in nearness to the Sun is Venus, whose transits, as we have seen, were considered of such importance in the problem of the solar parallax. Venus is considered to be much like the Earth, not differing greatly in size, and showing less equivocal traces of atmosphere than have been noted in the case of Mercury. Moreover, its rotation period has been, by many observers from the 17th century to the present day, considered to be nearly the same as that of the Earth. Thousands of observations have pointed to a value of just over 23 and a third hours. Schiaparelli, however, noted that certain bright spots apparently remained always at the same distance from the Terminator, and hence concluded that like Mercury and the Moon, Venus also keeps the same face always turned to its primary, or in other words, its rotation and revolution periods are identical. This gives a rotation period of 225 days, very different from the results of Cassini, Schroeder, De Vico, and others. But the case was not considered so certain as that of Mercury, 
It was at once suggested that a spot appearing at the same place on consecutive days did not negative the possibility of a whole rotation in the interval. And though this particular objection has been met by a pair of practically identical drawings made on the same day in 1877 by Schiaparelli at Milan and Holden at Washington, with an interval and actual time of eight hours, yet there are not wanting modern observations in support of the quick rotation period. Such well-known names as Perotin, Nice, Tacchini, Rome, and Lowell are on the side of Schiaparelli, but on the other side may be found almost equally careful observers, in support of whom may be cited Bilopolsky's attempt to test the matter spectroscopically in 1900, which apparently confirmed the short rotation period. But more recently in 1903, a similar method in the hands of V.M. Sliffer, working at Lowell's observatory, Flagstaff, Arizona, gave no evidence of a quick rotation. It was objected that this was only negative evidence, but the same method applied to Mars gave a result within 5% of the truth as known from other methods. At the risk of repetition, it is perhaps advisable to indicate briefly in this place the underlying principle in the spectroscopic method of determining rotation. Light from two opposite limbs of the planet is examined simultaneously with the spectroscope. Relatively, one set of rays is approaching the observer with the linear rotation velocity of the planet, the other receding with the same velocity. Hence, the displacement between the two corresponds to twice that linear velocity. The quicker the angular rotation and the larger the planet, the greater will be the displacement and the easier and more reliable will be the observation. Mars, however, is smaller than Venus, and his rotation period a little slower than that demanded by the opponents of Schiaparelli. It is therefore difficult to evade the argument that if they were right, Slipher's spectroscope must have proved it, hence the fact that it did not is positive evidence that they are wrong. It seems safe, therefore, to assume that the rotation period is 225 days, no intermediate value between that and approximately one day having met any support whatever. Long-continued observations of the appearance of Venus have rendered it fairly certain that Venus has an atmosphere of considerable extent. Effects have constantly been noted that can only reasonably be attributed to refraction of the sun's rays beyond the terminator and the bright limb is frequently greater than a semicircle, and occasionally is seen right around the planet, which could hardly be the case unless distinctly more than half the planet were illuminated. The dull light occasionally seen on the dark portion of the disk cannot be explained by Earthshine, as is the case with the corresponding lunar phenomenon. Much of the evidence on this subject is to be found in the various transit of Venus observations where the effect of an atmosphere is very marked. And yet there is evidence that considerable irregularities are also seen on the surface. We need not accept Schroeder's mountain of 27 miles in height, but careful observers such as DeVico and Denning have confirmed the existence of formations similar to those on the moon. It appears then 
that there is an atmosphere which twilight observations indicate as being of considerable depth, and that we can nevertheless see mountain formations through it. On the other hand, comparison with Mercury, considered as an airless planet, shows Venus to possess so high a light-reflecting power, or albedo, that it has been suggested that no solid body could be so bright, and that what is seen is an atmosphere charged with clouds, or possibly snow. It seems evident that more work remains to be done to enable a satisfactory decision to be made. Can it be that the main portion of the visible surface is simply a cloud world veiling the planet beneath, except for a few lofty snow-covered peaks occasionally rising above the clouds? It is true that maps of Venus have been produced by Lowell, for instance, showing markings of an indefinite character, of a spoke-like formation, but even Lowell is inclined to consider them as not real surface markings, but as optical effects, so that it cannot be said that they absolutely negative the cloud mask idea. The spectroscope as applied to the light of Venus, furnishes very slight evidence of any absorption of the sun's light by water vapor or anything else, so that there appears to be little doubt that most of the light, at any rate, which we receive, has not penetrated far into a dense atmosphere. These observations are not always accordant, some well-known spectroscopists having found distinct indications of water vapor, others practically none. The absorption is perhaps a more variable quantity than anything of the kind in our own atmosphere. And in any case, it seems certain that conditions on Venus are not so similar to those on the Earth as has sometimes been claimed. End of chapter 22